2: Episode 3: True Faith When Ronnie DeLaney shocked the world by breasting the tape to take gold in the 1500 meters final at the Melbourne Olympics, he did something that was totally instinctive. DeLaney dropped to his knees, crossed himself, and said a prayer his action wouldn't have been seen as anything unusual in the Ireland of 1956. That was the Ireland of Archbishop John Charles McQuaid, of captains in All-Ireland finals going down on one knee to kiss the ring on the hand of a bishop. A time when Ireland was Catholic and Christian to the core. Fast forward to 1990 and the heroics of Jack Charlton's Ireland at the World Cup in Italy. Goalkeeper Paggy Bonner used to keep a bottle of holy water in his net and no one batted an eyelid when an audience for the squad with Pope John Paul II at the Vatican was arranged. Ireland in 2023 is a very different country. Seven years ago, the census recorded the first fall in the absolute number of Catholics in Ireland in nearly half a century and the number of those saying they had no religion increased by 74%. The 2011 figure was 277,237, which rose 204,151 to 481,388. Few sports people talk openly of God, faith or the Bible, but there are exceptions. It's one of the reasons why Katie Taylor is so unusual. Taylor is an evangelical Christian and her faith, as much as boxing, defines her. Before fights, Taylor reads the Bible in her hotel room. She listens to hymns on her phone and she always turns to Psalm 18. She often wears t-shirts with biblical quotations when training and when warming up before fights. In 1956 and 1990, no one batted an eyelid when Delaney and Bonner expressed their faith. But Taylor's open and honest approach knocks many of us off kilter. It's one of the many, many things that sets her apart. Here's Donald McRae, the renowned boxing writer with The Guardian.
0: There is something about Casey. it's a presence, that is hard to put into words. You know, she, I'm not going to say anything new here when I say that Katie is a guarded person. She likes to keep her private life private and does not want to talk personally about things. And that's quite, when you're when you interviewing her initially, that's quite hard to, because you so want to get past that wall and, and just allow her to open up. But it's her choice not to open up. But the more I've spent time with her, I think I've only interviewed her twice in person in in detailed interviews. I've been to many sort of media calls and press conferences where I've watched her and listened to her and asked her questions. But in those two one-to-one interviews, I think I had an opportunity just to get to feel the force of her personality. And again, to say the force of her personality is confusing because she's quite a gentle person. She's softly spoken. But there is something about her that is fascinating. My first interview with her, we spoke a lot about poverty, women, and faith. Those were the key themes for her. She spoke a lot about, you know, her childhood and how she and her siblings had had come out of. She didn't quite say abject poverty, but she she made me understand that there'd been little or no money about for many years of her childhood, and she was so proud that her and all of her siblings had you know, gone on to be successful in sort of vocations as uh, contrasting as academia and boxing. And she sort of pinpointed that down to the presence of powerful women in her family. You know, her grandmother in particular, she spoke a lot about and her mother. And on the surface, you might think, oh, this sounds so sentimental, you know, all kind of slushy stuff. But actually the conviction in Katie, as she spoke about how, her family was built on these women. It was compelling. And um, her faith is obviously important to her. And sometimes I kind of glaze over when, when athletes start talking about their faith. But with Katie, I listened closely and we spoke a lot about how before fights, she and her mother will sit together with the Bible, they'll say a prayer. And it exuded a sincere quality to it, those words. The next time I interviewed her was in March 2022, on the Monday of Fight Week against Amanda Serrano. And the interview was scheduled to take place about two hours after I landed at JFK. And it was at the New York Athletic Club, which is this utterly swish, swanky um, kind of private club in New York, which, again, I wouldn't normally expect to find Katie Taylor there. And um I just got off the plane, looking as shabby as ever in these old soiled jeans. And um they wouldn't allow me into the to the building. Um and I said, oh, I've got an interview with Katie Taylor. Finally they succumbed and said, Well, you can go up um the goods lift at the back of the building. So that kind of amused Katie that I, you know, had to go up the goods lift and 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 meet her at the back of the building. But then we got shown into the swanky lounge and What sort of hit me then was that we were five days away from the biggest fight of her life and the biggest fight ever in women's boxing. And she was at peace, which sounds an odd thing to say because she's about to, in boxing terminology, go to war. But she, she was so happy to be in that moment because she'd been building towards this fight for so long. But she also, why she was fascinating and compelling was because she understood she was actually going to go into a dark place and that this was going to be an immensely difficult and hard night for her. And she said to me that that afternoon, this is a 50-50 fight. And she said, I'm not just saying that. I believe this and I know this. So then you talk about charisma. Normally, because Katie is so understated and sort of hides her personality, you don't see that charisma. But, wow, what I saw that Monday afternoon was this conviction in her, and it was absolutely riveting to to see it in her. And then, of course, uh, she gave me a, a good interview, I think, um, but five days later in Madison Square Garden, she gave us a fight that certainly I will never forget however ever long I live.
2: Katie Taylor has her green card now, and she lives full-time in the U.S., ...where she has bought a house. She trains at the Manchester ROCS club in Connecticut. There are two banners declaring this is the home of the champions... ...Mike Juan Williams and Matt Remillard. But Taylor, a world pro champion and a global figure in boxing, has no banner. Why? Don't want one. That's her answer. That's one of the contradictions... Taylor is in a sport where she wants to make waves and she has to sell herself but her instinct is to keep things low-key. The split from her father and coach Pete was traumatic and sent her reeling. At one stage she felt so lost that she slept sleep in her car in between training sessions with the Ireland team. When Taylor returned from Rio seven years ago she cut a haunted figure at Dublin airport and couldn't get out of the place quickly enough. Only a couple of weeks later, we heard that she'd gone back to play soccer at Enniskerry FC in Wicklow. Many figured it was just what she needed, immerse herself in a team game again, get out of the boxing bubble for a while. But Taylor is ferociously competitive and ambitious. She took it on herself to get in touch with promoter Eddie Hearn, and things snowballed from there. She trains with Ross Ennemite in the US now. And it's her local church that sustains her and the long, lonely hours outside of the gym. To former world middleweight champion Andy Lee, Taylor's faith is something that gives her an edge, in and out of the ring.
1: I've met Katie plenty of times and spent time with her. Um, But I think that's where she finds her strength. And I think... I think because she's a, such a humble person, It her having that faith it makes it easy for her to um, to reconcile with her achievements because being so humble, I think she has to give power to something, something else beyond herself in terms of she can't take responsibility for all that she has achieved, so she gives it up to God because she believes what she's doing she wouldn't have achieved without without her without her faith, and I, I can I can understand what that is because you know I can understand that. It's a hard thing to explain. and I hope I'm making <laughs> making my point, but you know, when for someone so humble to achieve all these to achieve all this great this greatness, I think she she puts it in the hands of God, and I think that's where she gets her strength from.
2: Over the last thirty years, I've been lucky enough to witness some of the greatest Irish sporting moments. There's a fair few in the list that will live forever. But maybe the most memorable moment of all was no coronation, no celebration. Rather, it felt like an intrusion. The sound of silence in the mixed zone of the Rio Centro Pavilion on August 15th, 2016. Katie Taylor was asked questions and Katie Taylor didn't answer slick with sweat, pale, exhausted, utterly shocked and bewildered by what had happened to her in the ring against Mira Potkonen, a 35-year-old journeywoman from Finland. How could Katie find words when there were no words? Nobody talked about it, but we all knew what happened was down to family and the way they sometimes fracture and the fallout when those fractures occur. It was her father and coach, Pete, who guided Katie as she broke down barriers in boxing. But a few months before the Olympic Games in Rio, he split from his wife, Bridget, moving on to a new relationship, and Katie's world collapsed. There are some extraordinarily intimate moments captured by Ross Whittaker in his documentary on her life after Rio. Like Katie weeping as her mother prays with her in a hotel room before a fight. And we can never get away from the lonely passion of Katie Taylor, watching her pound the snow-covered roads of Connecticut alone. Almost in passing, Katie mentions relationships that never really worked out. In Irish life especially, she has a profile that goes beyond boxing, beyond sport. Sometimes that means she has to answer questions about her personal life, the kind of questions that women are never asked, as Irish writer Ema Ryan points out.
3: Maybe there's a slight like, difference there where, you know, this suppose a woman has, like, a certain window if you do want to have kids, um, but it is so intrusive and so presumptuous as well, like, the presumption that all women want kids, you know? Um, particularly somebody like Katie Taylor, who has, like, made her life doing this very unusual, like, pursuing this extremely unusual career and unusual passion, you know, um... She's not an uh, an everyday person, you know, um, and I just find it. I I do find that a little bit depressing that there's an attempt to kind of constantly put her in a in a in a box, you know, of like things that women want, you know, um, because she's not a a normal woman. I don't think she's an extraordinary woman, um, but yeah, it is. It is. It is so. I would find that in her shoes, like that is so intrusive, you know, and so personal and. It's all relevant, you know. I think she's clearly made a decision where she wants to devote these years to, like, just maximising her sport, you know. Um, that's the decision that she's made. I think it's very it's very clear, you know.
2: Academics have spent years studying the phenomenon, trying to dissect the quiet power of introverts. When Dennis Bergkamp, one of countless hugely successful introverts, tried to come up with a title for his autobiography, he had a brainwave. Stillness and Speed. If Taylor ever gets around to writing a book herself, she should borrow it. It sums up what sets her apart. That still centre at her very core. Those lightning-fast hands and feet. Taylor describes herself as shy and private, though when you spend time with her and she gets comfortable and relaxed, she has a dry wit and is fine company. Eric Donovan knows her since her teenage years and sparred with her many times. He feels that only a select few get to see the real Katie Taylor.
4: Yeah, I I can't really remember the specific time of it, but I'd say I would have been around 15 years old, probably 14, 15 years old, probably coming up to the Irish team, boxing for Ireland that day. It would have been a kind of a class as a youth level at that time, uh, junior, jute junior, you know, and uh, Katie would have been there at the squad training and she would have been the only girl. So obviously she's going to stand out when, when you're the only girl in a in a room with about 20 young lads, um, you know, you're obviously going to take notice. But what stood out for me, apart from that, was the fact that she was really very quiet and, you know, uh, reserved and shy. But when the bell went and we did, we were doing school boxing or school combat or whatever it was. She just came alive, you know. It was just like somebody that just—it was like an orchestra playing inside of her, you know. Just boom, she just came alive, and just you could tell that she was so passionate about what she was doing and loved it and um, driven in every way, like you know. And ever since that first kind of early kind of moments of becoming aware of Katie, I just think my admiration only got stronger and grew from there of her.
2: There are two Pete Taylors, not one. Pete Jr., her brother, is close in age to Katie and the two have always had a strong bond. She is naturally reserved and reticent and in some ways Pete talks for her in Whittaker's documentary. He told the director one story that was left on the cutting room floor, but that sums up why Taylor is where she is. Pete recalled a sports meet where Katie was lining up for a sprint final. The other girls were chatting and laughing together before the race. Katie stood to the side in her own, crying because of the pressure she was putting on herself to win. Katie Taylor is unusual in women's boxing when it comes to earning power. In both the amateur and professional world, she has done well for herself. She even revealed last year, in a very un-Taylor-like move, she treated herself to a speedboat. An American survey in November 2015 had the Bray woman at number 10 in its top 10 list of richest women boxers of all time. That was nearly a year before she turned professional, but sponsors flocked to her as they knew she was box office. But her amateur career had always been a curiously off-Broadway one too. On February 24, 2012, Taylor took on Switzerland's Sandra Brueger in her hometown of Bray in a ballroom of the Royal Hotel. Taylor, the number one in the world against the world's number five. So much of her life back then happened far from the madding crowd. A man sat inside the door of the ballroom with a biscuit tin on a table in front of him. That was the box office. You paid your money and you sat where you liked. The TV cameras weren't there, that's for sure. She picked up general sport awards during her amateur career. But one thing that often irritated her was the footage shown at the various ceremonies. Sometimes the organisers would have no video clips at all. At other times, they would show clips of fights that were years old. And for all the medals that were hung around her neck, her opening bout at London 2012 against Natasha Jonas was the first time that most Irish people saw Taylor fight. All those lonely nights in Tonsberg, Katowicz, Ningbao, Pisarczyk, and Queen Wang Dao, the far-flung outposts where she won major medals, fueled her craving for the big time. Andy Lee was at all of her fights at London 2012, and the experience left a mark on him.
1: It was, you know, you go to these amateur boxing tournaments, you're lucky if there's 50 people in the audience. And I think for her and her opponents, it would have been, you know, something that they haven't experienced since or before that. Um and just 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 the you know even going to the arena it was like a soccer match you know so something like the world cup people all traveling flags everywhere tricolors in the air and everyone up, you know, people you hadn't seen in years you know turning up outside the stadium getting photographs and but the fights themselves were thrilling fights weren't they you know her first fight with Tasha Jones that set the tone you know that was that was as competitive as any fight and uh the standard was as good as any fight from from women and men, and that that's what that's what was what really got people excited as well. It wasn't that they were just you know it was the first thing. It was the standard of the boxing that they had. The three fights Katie had, they were they're all top level, and the final was as close as anything. And yeah, it, you know it was just it was just a real moment in time, wasn't it? That twenty twelve Olympics, and it it was Katie Taylor's death. It was just her time, wasn't it? You know, it was what she had worked for all those years. And, you know, the change that had come about over those few years, generally because of her and how she changed the face of boxing.
2: There was a chaos to that day and night in London. Katie had fallen in love with the Olympics when watching Sonia O'Sullivan race to silver at Sydney in 2000. Fast forward 12 years and O'Sullivan was chef de mission to the Ireland team in London. And one of her abiding memories of Taylor's triumph is a period of panic after the fight. It was a really warm day, so Katie hadn't bought a tracksuit, O'Sullivan told me. And then someone remembered that it's compulsory to wear a tracksuit for medal ceremonies at the Olympics. Katie didn't know that. She'd been able to get her medals at European and World Championships in her vests and shorts. So there was a bit of panic for a while. Katie was going to me, they're not going to take my medal away from me, are they? There were loads of athletes and backroom staff from different sports of the Irish team there for the final. So we figured we'd be able to borrow a tracksuit from one of them because all of the team wore the same one. But because it was hot, no one had bothered bringing one. Eventually we found a physio, Eimear O'Leary, and she had hers on. So Katie got her medal wearing Emer's tracksuit and Emer watched the medal ceremony wearing Katie's shorts from the final. That night was a blur for many of the Irish in London, but Andy Lee has one vivid memory.
1: Oh yeah, it was London 2012 Olympics and I was doing some work for RTE and the night Oh, the final. I went to watch the final. Um, we all know when, when the occasion that was and the buzz that was on. So I was doing a show in the evening, recapping it, and into the studio, which was in a tower block opposite the uh, Olympic Stadium in Stratford. It was in an old tower block. They had made a studio in one of the floors. Um, Katie Taylor walks in with Sonia Sullivan, and Katie's dad was there, and it was... Uh, I was obviously pleasure and fantastic to meet her, and she, you know, just to bask in the glow and the glory that she you know, had to like just uh, feel, you know, feel that the sense of joy she had, and obviously it was a great crack. And Sonia, was, you know, she was she's a real character, and um, everyone was so up for it. But then there was a thing Katie had to do. Now she didn't commit to it. I'm not sure who committed to it, but. It was in, like, the Irish house in London. There was these houses all around the place, and it was Katie had to go make an appearance. The night she won the gold medal, and it was, like, the last thing she wanted to do, they said, would you come, Andy, with us as well? And I said, of course I will. But so I ended up going with him and doing security that night. And you can imagine, obviously, the, the, the Irish that were there and the Irish already in London. The place was packed. They thought Katie was coming and Just the, the mania and the throng of people... Um, just trying to get a photograph, and I think she was just taking a backbite. I'm not sure she had expected that much, but, you yeah, know, so I ended up just being like a bodyguard for the night. And, uh, <laughs> it was good crack, it was good crack, and uh, I think, you know, that was, I think, that was the start of it for Katie, you know, her super stardom.
2: Let's rewind to a night a few years earlier, one in September 2008, Katie Taylor was sitting at home and settled back to watch The Late Late Show. Pat Kenny, the then host, had a decent lineup of guests that night. Trini and Susanna, Rick Stein, Carl Thatcher, Michael Gambon, Lisa Hannigan and Jimmy Carr, a mix of the weird and the wonderful. But it was something that another guest said that made Taylor sit bolt upright on her sofa. Pat Hickey, the then president of the Olympic Council of Ireland, was asked by Kenny about the possibility of women boxing at London 2012. We've a guaranteed gold medal if we can get women's boxing on the programme, said Hickey. You can put your house on it. Taylor could do nothing more than shake her head ruefully. She's been dealing with people's assumptions for a long, long time. The brave woman did manage to make the gold standard in London 2012, but the weight of expectation was hard to deal with. Another memory of that day is of an Irish boxing icon from the 1980s, Barry McGuigan, moving from a seat to hug her after she left the ring with gold around her neck. He'd become world featherweight champion in 1985 in the same city. A staggering 19 million people watched on TV, Little wonder that he got so caught up in Katie's moment.
5: It reminded me of my best nights and the atmosphere. And I, I actually got a, I, I got emotional when she won the gold medal. And I remember being in tears when she won that gold medal. And I was, you know, obviously a huge supporter of, of Katie's and, and always have been. And, yeah, that was the one time, I, I think it's the one event that I went to that I, I got emotional and, and you know, give her a big hug afterwards and, was thrilled for her and, and she was brilliant. And it was a tough fight in the final because she fought that Russian girl, very, uh, very, very good fighter. And um, she was obviously very well schooled and, and had a lot of fights herself as well. So it was a, a great performance by Katie. It was tremendously pressurizing for her because she'd won a number of world championships uh, before then. And she went in as the favourite. And so everybody expected her to, to, to win the gold medal. And there was a lot of very good girls in that in that competition. And particularly the, the Russian girl. I think she was a southpaw uh, in the final. But she was very, very good. And um, it was a tough fight. And she deserved to win it. And she deserved to be up there because of what she'd done for, for women's boxing in general.
2: What Katie Taylor achieved and her prominence was unthinkable in the Ireland of not-that-distant past. That was an Ireland that had a very particular view of women and what women were capable of. Not very much, as Rosita Sweetman, a veteran of the feminist movement, points out.
6: We sort of laid bare the patriarchy's architecture. And in every way, like, for instance, girls weren't supposed to be able to do maths You know, it was like our lady brains couldn't add up. So all of the professions like the sciences, engineering, um, medicine, veterinary were closed to women before they even started because they didn't have maths at at their leaving cert. Irish women in the 70s were basically cheap labour. The vast majority of women who were working, you didn't have a career, you had a job. And the job was in the lowest paid sector. Women earned 54% of what men earned. And they were in all the the rough and tough jobs. And then, yeah, for women who fell out of the system, like there was no divorce. And because we wouldn't recognise, the Irish government wouldn't recognise divorce. The English government wouldn't recognise men who, who ran away and left their wives and children Legally, an Irish husband could walk out the door, leave his wife and children, go to England, get a divorce, sell the family home, get full custody of the children. All Legally, he could do all that. And without the wife even knowing. You know, it's terrifying to think how powerless women were.
2: We keep coming back to the lonely passion of Katie Taylor. It's no secret that she finds fight week particularly tough. That's largely down to the twin demands of making weight and the requirement to perform media duties. It's a cruel quirk of boxing that media day is usually a day or two before weigh-in. That's when boxers are at a particularly low ebb, trying to shave off another couple of ounces off already lean frames. At the same time, they're supposed to perform in front of the microphones and cameras. It's putting on an act. And Katie Taylor hates putting on an act. It's easy to overlook how tough a life she's led in recent years, the toll that must have taken, both mentally and physically. Including both the amateur and pro ranks, Taylor fought 17 times in just 21 months between April 2016 and December 2017. That was incredibly hard on both the body and mind. So many high-stakes fights in there, from Olympic qualifiers to World Championships to Olympic Games and on to big professional fights. That was also the time when she'd split from coach and father Pete, a time when she'd moved to a small town in America, thousands of miles from friends and family. Her faith was a large part in keeping on, keeping on. It's one of the main reasons why she's tougher than the rest.